Zechariah 10. And we'll just jump in with verse 1 without an introduction. Ask the Lord for rain. In the time of the latter rain, the Lord will make flashing clouds. He will give showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. This reminds us of several important truths. Uh, God gives rain. The Bible never just simply says, it rains. Weathermen will say that, but the Bible says God sends rains and withholds rains. And so it says here, ask the Lord for rain. Here's our next application. Pray for rain. Though we believe in God is in control of everything, that doesn't absolve us of our uh, human responsibility to be God's means. Pray for rain. Um, and pray for it maybe to stop raining if it's too much. We find the example of Elijah, you remember? God had told him, go and tell King Ahab, it's not going to rain again until I say so. And God later told him, yep, it's going to stop and then it's going to rain later. So God gives and withholds it. And so we should pray for rain. In fact, the Andruses were asking, they said, boy, pray, they need rain over there with the, the cattle and the farmers need it. Um, pray for it, but that doesn't mean do rain dances and superstitions and stuff like that. What was it, Mark Twain said, everybody talks about the weather, nobody does anything about it. Well, why don't we pray about it? And God will answer it. Sometimes in surprising ways. Some years ago, there was a major drought in Australia, I think the worst in 50 years. And way out in the outback, animals were dying and so forth. Um, and then the prime minister did something that was politically incorrect. He called for a national day of prayer and fasting for rain. Guess what? They had a downpour like the next day, almost flooding, and they had to pray, stop, Lord. But that was amazing. I'd like to see more of that in civil society. Let's pray that God would send rain and other such things. Now it says here the latter rain. There were two rain seasons in Israel that might surprise you. The early rains were in the planting season in October. Here it's different. It's in the, in the spring. But that's when they planted because it's very uh, dry and a lot of it desert. And then the latter rains which are mentioned here are in the springtime. So he says, ask the Lord for the time of the latter rain. And evidently this was in that time of winter and the latter rain was due and God said, ask. So every location on earth has some rainy season. Some rains a lot more like the, um, the rainforest in South America where it just rain, rain, rain or the monsoons in uh, Southeast Asia. And they expect that and there's usually flooding. And then other areas, uh, I grew up in New Orleans, and boy, does it rain a lot there. The lightning, thunder, and ball lightning, and a lot of rain, because it's just a big swamp down there, so very rainy. But the two least rainy countries or places in the world might surprise you, Chile. There's a desert, I think, in North Chile in South America where it rains maybe like one or two inches a year, and then that's comparable to Death Valley. But Death Valley had flooding recently with that hurricane that came up through California. And, of course, the ground is so hard, it just produces flood because it doesn't sink in. Uh, so they got like a whole year's worth within one day. 
Now, this verse has been misused by some old-fashioned Pentecostals in what's called the latter rain movement. They said, well, there was the early and the latter rain in the Jewish calendar. And so they said the early reign of the Holy Spirit was on the day of Pentecost in the time of the apostles. And God promised the latter rain of pouring out the Holy Spirit right before Jesus comes. And they say, hallelujah, that's us. The latter rain movement, the modern day Pentecostal movement. Well, they've got half a truth, but not quite. Um, the sending of rain is sometimes symbolic of the sending of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Spirit is typified as fire, oil, but sometimes rain. And God sends the Holy Spirit, sometimes like a downpour that we call revival. Uh, study the history of revival. They say it's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so we should pray for that. I think that's more biblical than this latter rain movement. What else? Jesus said God sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So we should pray for rain, not just for us, but for them. It's a token of God's common grace. Charles Spurgeon said when God wants to water my garden, he sends rain all over South London. I like it. <laughs> you got that, Micah? He, he's another Spurgeonite. I like good old Spug. Now, there's another word play on this, and I don't know if I'm going to put it on a road sign, but uh, some church once did. It said, that God reigns and the sun shines. Now, that's God, R-E-I-G-N, and this S-O-N. But you could also say, God reigns and reigns, the sun and the sun shine. Just a little word play. By the way, there are word plays comparable to puns, both in Hebrew and in Greek, that are, well, the technical term is paramanasia, so I'm in good company. Okay, verse 2. For the idols speak delusion, the diviners envision lies and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain, therefore the people win their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd. This is one of several places in the Word of God where God condemns occultism, pagan religions, divination, and anything like that. It's all evil. Now, some of those people that practice these things today, they're just charlatans. They don't believe it. They do this to take advantage of superstitions, people for the money. But other ones do believe this. But it's, it's evil. It's demonic. And these are lying delusions and deceivers, as it says here. They speak delusions and diviners, in other words, they practice divination. What's divination? Well, it's an occult practice condemned in the Bible where you look for signs and omens in something. Like, remember one person said he prayed for guidance. He said, Lord, if you send me a white dove flying by, I'll take that as a sign. That's divination. And uh, that's not biblical. But then pagan divination, they'd like take a, an animal, cut it open, and see which way the blood flowed. And, you know, what size the liver was. Terrible things. But divination is strictly forbidden by the word of God. So these false prophets that invaded Israel were pretending to have dreams and visions. Um, now, that's the counterfeit of the true dreams and visions God had given to his prophets. Wherever God does something, Satan has counterfeits. They're true Christians and they're counterfeit Christians. So Satan does sometimes give uh, satanic dreams and visions to people that are not Christians. For example, you ever heard the whirling dervishes? What are those? 
those are the Sufis, which are a mystical cult of Islam. And they have these long robes, and they start whirling around. Our brother from the Middle East has seen them. He says, they work themselves into a trance and start hallucinating. Something like that happens in Greece with certain Greek Orthodox monks that pray this thing called the Jesus Prayer. Anybody ever heard of that? The Jesus Prayer. They do it in a certain way. They're supposed to put their chin against their chest and breathe, kind of hyperventilate, and they start saying something in Greece in Greek, uh, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And they say it over and over again hundreds of times, and they work themselves up into a trance, and they say, we're experiencing divine ecstasy. No, that's what kundalini yoga does as well. In Buddhism, they can work themselves into this state. And some people think, now they've made contact with God. No, no. The Bible condemns this sort of stuff. It's not just rigmarole, it's demonic delusion. But some people would say, well, does, does God still give dreams and visions like he did to Zechariah and others? No, he doesn't. Hebrews 1 says, in former times God spoke in various ways. But now he's spoken in his son. And the completion of the Bible, those dreams and visions and visits of angels were, were temporary in Bible days. We've got something more tangible and even greater, according to Second Peter 1. We've got the living and abiding word of God. So we don't need dreams and visions. Beware of those today, even that claim to be Christians, that say they've had a dream or a vision from God. Now it says here that these pagan dreamers, um, they're deceiving the gullible. And the um, people that may mean well, but they're desperate. Now at our conference, um, Justin Peters is going to show a video and narrate it, warning about charlatans, they claim to have dreams and visions, and they say, we've got the power to heal, and God wants you to be healed, and they take advantage of the gullible and the desperate for money. And they ought to be horsewhipped because they're the same as the money changers that Jesus horsewhipped. But it's, it's the same idea. They do it for money, they, they're promoting lies, and they take advantage of the desperately ill people that are poor and uh, they do it for money. But other ones do it for more than money. They do it to lure them into some pagan idea. And so God has mercy. It says here, the last part of that verse, the people win their way. They're like sheep without a shepherd. By the way, that phrase is used in Mark's gospel when uh, thousands of people came to hear Jesus, to be healed. They were hungry. Jesus fed them. And you remember what he said to the apostles? He says, have them all sit down. On the green grass. And of course we, uh, that was like Psalm 23. Makes me lie down in green pastures. And this is close to the Sea of Galilee. Waters. But then Mark adds this. He says, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were desperate. Please heal me. I'm so hungry. And Jesus healed and fed them. A good example for us. We should support missionaries. But also Christian charities that bring food, medicine, clothing to People that are starving. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And of course, the great shepherd is the Lord Jesus. Brings us to verse 3. God says, my anger. I'm going to be preaching on the anger of God soon. My anger is kindled against the shepherds. Now, the Bible says everybody's under the wrath of God. God is angry with the wicked every day, Psalm 711. But God reserves a special anger for certain people. I had a little bit of righteous indignation this morning about those 
ungodly teachers and administrators that teach perversion to little children. Oh, just despicable. Can you imagine how God is angry with that? Well, it says he is also angry with these false shepherds. And he says, I will punish the goat herds. Now, goat herds are those that uh, lead goats and shepherds lead sheep. And they're leading the people astray. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. They're false prophets. They're false shepherds. Jesus talked about false shepherds in John 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. And he pulled the wool off of the false shepherds. He says, they're liars, they're thieves, they're murderers. And that's what they are. We don't say, well, these are the holy men, the gurus of Buddhism and whatever else. No, God says he's angry with them, and so should we be. Um, you've heard me tell the story, but uh, preacher boy, a good story is worth repeating. So if you've heard it, listen to it again. When I was in Bible college, the pastor under whom I studied and he mentored me told the story of when he went on a trip to Israel. By the way, how many of y'all have ever been to Israel? Anybody here? Nobody. Not even me. Oh, Matt. Matt, yell out where you were baptized. The Jordan River. That's right. How about that? Jordan River. Anyway, this pastor who is from New Zealand, uh, David Reese Thomas, very godly man, and he said he took a trip to Israel and took one of those bus tours, and when they were out in the country, the bus stopped, and all the Christians were looking, and here comes a herd of sheep. A flock of sheep, sorry. And the shepherd was behind them with his stick driving them and yelling at them and probably cursing in Arabic or Hebrew. And then they go across. And then, uh, my friend asked the bus driver, says, you know, I always heard that the shepherd goes in front of the sheep and gently leads them and calls their name and they follow. But this guy was behind them yelling and, and poking them with that stick. How do you explain this? And the driver said, oh, that's not the shepherd. He's the butcher. And that pastor said, Kurt, don't be a butcher, be a shepherd. But there are butchers today. And I've known Christians that have been beaten up and misused by butcher so-called preachers. Now, it's also another idea um, where... It's like leading these sheep to the slaughter. You ever heard of what's called the Judas goat? What's a Judas goat? Um, I've been to slaughterhouses where they lead in a, a bull or a cow or a steer. But in certain slaughterhouses where uh, sheep are very naive and they'll follow another sheep. So they have a Judas goat. And he gets there and then for some reason the, all the sheep begin to follow him from the pen into this little narrow way into the slaughterhouse. And they don't know they're about to be slaughtered. So they come to a certain place. The Judas goat goes one place and the sheep go in another place to their death. And then they take the Judas goat back to lead some more sheep in there. And the Bible uses this illustration. That's what these false shepherds are like. They're leading sheep to the slaughter that are naive and don't know any better. So um, God is angry with them and so should we. The leaders of cults. Uh, Catholicism, liberalism, pagan religions, they are butchers, not shepherds. They're the enemies of God. Verse 4, from him comes the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, and from him every ruler together. Now, you wonder, him who? Now, 
New King James Version usually capitalizes personal pronouns speaking of God, but it doesn't here. So I consulted some scholars, and they're evenly divided. Some said, well, this is talking about God. It should be capitalized. From God comes the cornerstone, because this is a messianic prophecy of Jesus, the chief cornerstone. And that he is the tent peg. What's the tent peg? Well, they'll have not just pegs that go in the ground, but they'll have a center pole that keeps up the whole tent, and they'll have a peg on it where they, they hang things on, and that's very important. And it says, from him the battle bow. That would be the, uh, the bow in the air. And that from him every ruler together. And so this would be a messianic prophecy. That's one interpretation. I'm inclined to go with it. Because Zechariah has a lot of prophecies of the Messiah. Verse 5, they shall be like mighty men. In other words, men of valor, uh, brave soldiers. Who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. They shall fight because the Lord is with them. And the riders on horses shall be put to shame. Um, God gives great courage like this and, and, and victory. And God promised deliverance uh, to his people. You remember they had been delivered from Persia, Babylon. And now they're wondering how safe was, is this going to last? Well, later the Seleucids and the Greeks conquered them. But this also finds their fulfillment elsewhere. Um, we'll get to this later, during a time of peace in Israel where the Jews revolted and drove out their captors during the Maccabean, Maccabean revolt under Judas Maccabeus. And they had peace. And God promised that here. Verse 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside, for I am the Lord their God, and I will hear them. Now we know what the house of Judah is. That was the largest of the twelve tribes. But what's the house of Joseph? Well, that was another tribe. Uh, Joseph was the second to last of the twelve sons of Jacob. But it became so big it was divided into two. Ephraim and Manasseh were the sons of Joseph. And so when you look on Bible maps and you read in the Bible, it doesn't mention much about the house of Joseph. This is one of the few times. Because if you looked at a map and saw Judah down south and Ephraim and Manasseh up north, those two tribes account for like 90% of the population and of the land. So this is a double, double promise. I'm going to strengthen so much of Israel and I will bring them back. Which indicates, as we've seen earlier, there will be another Dispersion. God had sent northern Israel into exile in Assyria. Then Babylonians conquered Assyria and took them. And that they later conquered southern Israel. And then Persia conquered Babylon. And then God put it on the heart of the Persian king to let the Jews go back to Israel. God touched that heart. Did anybody remember the name of that king? Cyrus. Cyrus. And our brother from the Middle East named one of his sons Cyrus. In Persian it's Koresh. And he was a good king, and God used him. And in my devotions, I was reading, very, very interesting, a little sideline here, this little extra bread from the oven, not, in, not on the menu. Read this in my devotions just this morning where God says, my servant Cyrus. And that was several hundred years earlier. He named him in the book of Isaiah. Did you know that? He didn't just say, a king will arise and will give deliverance. He says, his name will be Cyrus. I'm sure the Jews said, Koresh? That's, that's not a Hebrew name. Who's he talking about? Well, they later found out. 
so God touched their heart and let them return in contrast to another king that did not want to let the Jews go. Pharaoh, think about that. Let my people go. No. You know, okay, yes. Oh, I changed my mind. Not Cyrus. Bible says the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He can turn it any way he wants to, like rivers of water. And so he, he turned Cyrus's heart, and then he hardened the heart of Pharaoh and got vengeance on him. God can undo and reverse calamities, as it says here. They shall be as though I did not cast them aside, because the Jews were wondering, we were God's people. Children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, David. And what are we doing in chains over in Babylon and Assyria? Well, it was because they had forsaken the Lord. Now the Lord brings them back. He says, okay, I spanked you. Now you learned your lesson. It's as if I have not cast you aside. I've renewed the covenant, and you're still my people. principle applies to us. God can undo and reverse calamities that he sends us into. Just trust him. We know how the story ends in heaven. And uh, by the way, notice it says, I am the Lord, their God. There's an emphatic proclamation of monotheism. He's the one and only God. I was reading that in Isaiah, where he says, I am the only God. I'm the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Is there another Savior? I know not one. And this is how the uh, Ten Commandments begin. I am the Lord your God that brought you out of the house of Egypt. Therefore, don't worship other gods besides me. So the context is here. The Jews were wondering, well, how's, gonna, how's this going to come, come to pass? We're, we're poor exiles. We're back in the land. Uh, we're like refugees. And God says, don't worry. I'm the Lord. As he sells else, says elsewhere, is anything too hard for me? I'm, I'm God. So he's, and we need to remember that. When we pray and it doesn't look like there's any way out of a problem, it's easy for God if he chooses. So we say, Lord, be pleased to choose to do this. He says, and I will hear them. Again, that's an echo of when the Jews were in captivity in Egypt and they were crying out for deliverance. And then Moses meets God in the burning bush and God says, I've I've heard their cries. I've seen their tears. Logan, that'll preach. God sees our tears, he hears our cries. We are still his people. We can cry and cry and cry. Tears. God sees every tear. Keep praying. God can answer, even above what we can imagine or think. Verse 7. Those of Ephraim, now that's that part of the half-tribe of Joseph, and that's where a lot of the idolatry started. Those of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man. Not like this leader of apostasy. And their heart shall rejoice as if with wine. And their children shall see it and be glad their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. In other words, instead of the tears, there'll be the joy. Do you remember, again, the context somewhat earlier um, when there was a rebuilding of the temple and the enemies tried to stop it. And this was after 70 years in exile. And there was such a tumult of the crying out You couldn't tell the old men crying and the young men rejoicing. The old men were crying because they said, we were young men that remembered the old temple. And they'd cry out, oh, it was destroyed. We became slaves. We're back here now and they're weeping. There's nothing like hearing Jewish men crying out. And then the younger men were rejoicing that had not been in exile. 
And so it says here, there's going to be this joy. The Bible says he turns our weeping into dancing and our mourning into great joy. Keep that in mind. God wipes away tears and can replace it with his joy. Now an interesting biblical metaphor is used in verse 8. I will whistle for them and gather them and I will redeem them. They shall increase as they once increased. Now this sometimes is translated as I will hiss for them. But hiss usually means a bad thing. Uh, we, we whistle for a pet dog or a horse. Um, animals will hear that. Uh, shepherds will sometimes whistle, but they'll usually call out the name of that sheep. Jesus said, my sheep hear me, call them and they will come. At the, uh, you've heard me mention the Daniel Ranch back in Texas. And Harry Foxville had the sheep out on our land. He'd lease it. The sheep, the sheep, the cattle would be all the way out there. He wouldn't whistle for them. He'd just sit in his pickup truck that was filled with feed. And he'd just simply sit on the horn. And, and those cattle would hear that and they'd just come a-running for all around. Well, God says, I will whistle for them and gather them. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. That's not audible listening to a whistle or a pickup truck horn, but it's the invisible or physically inaudible call the Holy Spirit calling to our hearts. And he says, I will redeem them. Now look at the word redeem. That's an important Bible word. It means to buy back. Like to buy back something that was stolen or that was pawned at the pawn shop. In the Old Testament, the word redeem, which by the way is very common in Isaiah, it's used of redemption from bondage. God redeemed his people out of Egypt. And the price was the slain lamb at Passover. He redeemed them out of the bondage in Babylon and in Persia and Assyria. And then later out of Greece and Rome. Uh, so that's what you see. Usually there is redemption from slavery. When you come to the New Testament, redemption talks about redemption from a greater slavery. Not just from Pharaoh, but from Satan. And uh, the, the blood price was the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the redemption price. Jesus ransomed us, the same word for redemption. So we can look at this and say this would apply to us in a spiritual way. That where God calls us and he will redeem us and we will increase as they once increased. Verse 9, notice the I again. How often these verses start with I? Uh, verse 6, I will strengthen, I will bring them back. Uh, verse 8, I will whistle, I will redeem them. Verse 9, I will sow them. It's as if God's saying, I don't even have to use the angels. This is not you, it's not these others. I will do it. Sometimes he does use means, excuse me. I will sow them, that means to plant, among the peoples, and they shall remember me in far countries, they shall live together with their children and they shall return. Now what's this predicting? They're already back from exile. And God's saying, I'm going to disperse you yet again. I will sow you amongst the peoples in the far countries. I'm sure when they read this, they said, here we go again. Is he going to send us back to Babylon? No. There would be another dispersion. Anybody remember what it was? 70 AD. When... God let the Romans conquer Jerusalem and Israel and they tore down the temple and the Romans said, that's it, get them out. Some of them stayed and then in 135 
A.D. This this is a strange twist of circumstances. They had rejected Jesus as Messiah, but the Pharisees accepted a false prophet named Bar Kokhba as the Messiah, and he staged a revolution. We're going to be like the Maccabees and drive the Romans out, and the Romans said, that's it. They crushed it, and they said, no Jews in that land anymore, not no Hebrews in Palestinia. And that's when the great dispersion happened, and only a tiny number stayed for the last 2,000 years. The Jews were scattered all over north, south, east, and west. They went up to, to, Israel, to, to Israel, to Europe, to the Far East, to South America, to all the lands of the world, the dis, of, of the dispersion. You know, if you travel around the world, you're going to find some Jews somewhere, wherever you go. My mother grew up in a tiny village, wasn't even a village, just like 200 people in South Texas. Guess what? She grew up, her best friend was a Jew, and her parents ran a little, little market there. There are even Jews in Muslim nations. Believe it or not, there are even Jews that went back to Germany after World War II. It's a Jewish community, I think like 48,000 Jews in Germany. And they're here and there, even in unusual places. Now, here's an illustration. It's a good story. I don't know if it's true, but it makes a point. There were some uh, Jewish rabbis traveling to, to China. And they were in a restaurant, and they said, you know, we've heard there are Jews everywhere, but I haven't seen any Jews in China. Uh, so they asked the um, Chinese waiter, uh, do you have any Chinese Jews? And I said, ah, hold on. Went back in the kitchen talking in Chinese and comes back and says to the rabbis, we, we have orange juice, we have grapefruit juice, we do not have Chinese juice. You get the pun. But there were Chinese Jews. That is, Jews living in China and some had intermarried. They're everywhere, all around the world, because God had sent them. And then he says they're going to return. Return where? Back to Haaretz, the land. And in the last hundred years, because of the Zionist movement, a lot of those Jews around the world have gone back to the land. It's almost like a magnet. Their heritage, they say, we're just kind of drawn to go back there. Now, having said that, there's also a Christian dispersion. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And you go all around the world, there are going to be some Christians here and there, some more in some countries than others. First Peter 1 and James 1 refers to us as that dispersion. It's worldwide. And God promised that he would later bring the Jews back to the promised land and there will be a revival of Jews, not just in the promised land, but coming to believe in Jesus as their Messiah. Look that up in Romans 11. So I think that's what this is prophesying. Verse 10, I will also bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. So wait, 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 time out. I thought all the Jews left Egypt and left Assyria. Most of them did, but some stayed. Um, That's surprising. Some went back to Egypt. You remember the Hebrews that were delivered and some of the Egyptians tagged along. Perhaps some of the Jews stayed back there. You'd wonder, why would they ever want to go back? Well, we know that some Jews did migrate down to Egypt. there's the old legend of the wandering Jew. The Jews are always wanting to keep, keep moving around, never finding a place for the sole of their feet until they get back to the promised land. But some moved back to Egypt. For example, there was a Jewish community oh, approximately 200 years before Jesus that may, mainly spoke 
Greek, not Coptic, which is an Egyptian form of Greek. And they knew Hebrew, but they said, well, a lot of our Jews in these uh, synagogues, they don't really know Hebrew. So let's translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek for them. Okay, would someone tell me what is that Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible called? The Septuagint, and that was done by Jews in Egypt. So it says here, I will bring them back from the land of Egypt. And then uh, Acts chapter 2, there were Jews in, um, uh, came into Jerusalem for the day of Passover. And it mentions 18, I think 18 countries where they had lived, but they came back and some of them came from Egypt. Later in the book of Acts, um, they, they, they arrested Paul and they thought he was another false messiah. And so this Roman guard says, aren't you like that guy, that, that Egyptian that marshaled an army to try to overthrow us? That was some, another Jewish fanatic that said we're going to drive the Romans out. And they were slaughtered. And so this man somehow thought, was, Paul, was that you, that Egyptian Jew? No, so that tells us they were Jews still down in Egypt. Isaiah prophesied about certain promises to Jews in um, Egypt as well. Well, what about, by the way, Israel's about the size of New Jersey, and yet it says here there's going to be no more room for them. Boy, there's a lot of Jews and, of course, Arabs, Palestinians, in the land, and that's why they're squabbling over who owns it. It's growing uh, enormously. What about Assyria? That's Assyria, not Syria. Well, they conquered the north of Israel, and then they were moved over to Babylon, but evidently some stayed, because God says, I'm going to deliver them. Remember, from all around the world, he says, I'm going to bring them to the land of Gilead and Lebanon. Now, Lebanon is north, Gilead is in Israel, there's balm in Gilead, until there's no room found for them. So I'm sure they're saying, wow, are you going to, are you going to increase our numbers? Well, God promised that to Abraham. Now, some see also a spiritual fulfillment in this, where Christians are the spiritual Jews coming from around the world, every language, tribe, nation, and so forth. We're almost finished. Verse 11. He shall pass through the sea with affliction and strike the waves of the sea. All the depths of the river shall dry up and the pride of Assyria shall be brought down. The scepter of Egypt shall depart. So again, there's Assyria and Egypt. What's this river? Um, God mentions the river several times in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's referring to the river Nile. Other times the river Euphrates. Those were the two biggest rivers in that area. The third one would be the Tigris. Um, So when it mentions the river in Egypt, that's talking about Nile River, the longest river in the world. And then Assyria would be mentioning the Euphrates, which was mentioned in Genesis 2. Interesting. Do a study of the rivers in the Bible and the rivers around the world. Old Man River, Mississippi. The Amazon River, the biggest river in the world. It's got all those tributaries. The Ganges River in India. The Tiber uh, River in Europe. The Thames, the Danube, the Hudson River feeding into New York City. So major rivers, so the application here is these nations that rely upon their, uh, their rivers, God's going to do something in them. By the way, book of Ecclesiastes has an interesting thing. It says, all the rivers flow into the sea, but the sea is not yet full. Uh, and one 
use of that principle is that all humanity is like rivers flowing somewhere. Where is all fallen humanity heading? To hell. We need to stand in the gap and warn them. So God's promising blessings for the Jews scattered around the world and punishment upon their captors. Lastly, verse 12. I will strengthen them in the Lord, that is his people, and they shall walk up and down in his name, says the Lord. They were weak, but God made them weak, and God now makes them strong, and that's how God works. When I am weak, then I am strong, the Apostle Paul said. Okay, two last applications from this chapter. You look at these prophecies and say, when? When is this talking about? When was, has this been fulfilled? Is this yet future? It's not always easy to tell. I said that some of this is fulfilled in the time of the Maccabees. That was after Zechariah and before Jesus, and there's a time of peace, and they had their own king, the Maccabees, under Judas Maccabeus. By the way, um, some of the later Jews wrote books called the books of the Maccabees. There's four of them, and the Catholic Church accepts them in the Old Testament. Did you know that? They had some, like seven extra books. Others say some of these are fulfilled spiritually in the church, and we do find examples of that. Certain Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled spiritually in the church. Other ones, as I've said, are fulfilled literally in the regathering of Jews, first to the land and also uh, to Jesus as Messiah. Now let me point out something very interesting there. Uh, the promise of them going back to the land, but also in believing in Jesus. Most Jews have not come to believe in Jesus. Consequently, did you know that there are certain ultra-Orthodox Jews that say we should not go back to the land? They do not believe in the Zionist movement. They said Jews should not go back and certainly not build a temple until Messiah comes. They don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, but they say God will send us a Messiah. Then we go back to Haaretz and rebuild the temple. But they say not until that. So they believe there will be a coming Messiah. And we, it's our privilege to say he's come. You don't have to go back to the land. There's a greater land. It's called heaven. So it's like which comes first, the regathering of Jews to the land or to believe in the Messiah. But more and more Jews are believing in Jesus. Then another fulfillment some people see of this great peace for God's people, they'd say that's during the thousand-year millennium on earth after Jesus returns. And then others say, no, all this finds its ultimate fulfillment in the peace of heaven. There's some application of each of these because sometimes there's double fulfillment, a fulfillment literally that prefigures a spiritual fulfillment future. And sometimes it's hard to know which is the fulfillment of a specific prophecy. Second principle, as we've seen before, God is in control of everything. Started off, he's in control of the weather, even the rain. He's in control of the rise and fall of empires and of all people in all history, because you've probably heard it put. History is simply his story. God is in control of everything. And we can take comfort in that. He's in control of our world, your family, your health. God's in control. And if you're his child, he'll protect you and see you through to the end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Zechariah in chapter 10. Bless us as we prepare to hear chapter 11 next week by your grace. And lead us day by day until then. In Jesus' name, amen.